Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good to see you all, and uh, so glad that you're with us this morning. And uh, I really do want to just real quickly affirm you for being here today and uh, making it a priority to gather together with Christ Church and uh, really setting aside, if you think about it, the first fruits of your week, the first few hours of this new week that God's given us for you to come and to prioritize this, this moment and say, there's a lot of reasons um, that I wouldn't want to be here. There's a lot of reasons that make it hard uh, to get here within my own heart, within the family, within the world, whatever it is. And uh, the fact that you're here is a big day and so uh, is a big deal. So I want to affirm that and uh, grateful for each of you um, and the chance to be together. So um, this morning, as Sean mentioned, we're going to be kind of diving into a season of what I'm thinking of really as a season of reorientation. Uh, if you've ever started a new job or at a new school, you know that there's an orientation period. And then uh, inevitably, as life goes on, and especially in a season like we've had the last year and a half or whatever, uh, we can say it's been marked by significant disorientation. And uh, everything's weird, right? That's kind of been my constant refrain for the last year and a half when people ask me how it's going. Everything's weird, right? It's just disorienting. Um, and then there's times where we need to recalibrate, to be uh, realigned or reoriented, um, reminded of who we are and why we're here and what we're trying to do. And so specifically as a church, as we um, dive into this uh, new school year together and all that it represents, um, we wanted to set aside a couple months um, as a season of reorientation to help reintroduce us uh, to one another and to the vision and the mission that God's given us, but even um, more specifically, reorientation about what it actually means, what it actually looks like to follow Jesus. What does it really mean to live as citizens of this new kingdom that's rising up all around us? What does it actually look like to be disciples of Christ in the world uh, that we live in? And so we're going to be asking that question over the next couple months as we kind of take a little bit of break from the church calendar. And when we get to the, the season of Advent... We'll dive back into the lectionary um, and all of that. And uh, lastly, by way of introduction, um, over this kind of next 12 months, um, we've mapped out uh, sort of a, a big arc of um, what the teaching ministry will look like here on Sunday mornings. And just kind of by way of letting you know what, what's coming, I'll be doing about half of the preaching this year, um, about 25, 26 sermons or so. Um, we have 10 guest slots that we're going to be inviting in people from outside Antioch and mostly outside uh, Central Oregon to come and speak. Um, Pastor Sean will take uh, about 10, and then uh, Pastors Linda, Amy, Rick, uh, Jer, others that are kind of within leadership within our church, they'll each take a couple each throughout the year as 
well. And so um, maybe that's different for you if you're new to Antioch, that you're used to like the one senior pastor that's up there preaching every week, uh, that sort of thing. Um, the truth is we found that's just not good for anybody. Uh, not good for me, not good for you, not good for the other voices and leaders that God's raised up. And so um, so that's kind of our hope moving forward, that I'll be here about... Uh, be in this spot about every other week, and then uh, lots of other folks. And so I'm excited about that, and I think it's going to be really good and healthy for us as a congregation. And so um, <clears throat> that's where we're headed. So if you've been around Antioch for more than an hour, um, you're familiar with this phrase that we use regularly, and that's the phrase, the reconciliation of all things. And it comes from the book of Colossians chapter 1, really as a summary statement the Apostle Paul uses to encapsulate the good news of Jesus. What is the gospel? The gospel is that in Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. And so we use that phrase uh, over and over again to help orient ourselves to Jesus, to the kingdom, and to what it means to be the church and be disciples in the world. Now, I want to just pause and acknowledge for a moment, as a vision statement, it's quite ambitious to say that this little church exists to pursue the reconciliation of all things, right? If you kind of look around going, really? That's, <laughs> that's the goal? That's, well, that's how we define success? And I, I want to just make sure that we're really clear on this. Our vision statement is not something that we could ever accomplish. But it is something that God has promised he will accomplish through Christ. Okay, so as a church... Uh, rooted in the name and love of Jesus, if our vision statement is something that's attainable for us, we've shot too low. Our vision statement is something that only Jesus can do and that he has promised he is doing in the world. He is making all things new, including us. He's repairing the sin-severed relationships that exist between us and God, us and ourselves, us and each other, us and the rest of creation. And so be really clear, I don't think that I'm going to reconcile all things or that we're going to reconcile all things or that you're, Jesus is reconciling all things to himself and he has invited us as his church to be recipients and participants in his saving, restoring, reconciling work in the world. And so I want to make sure we're really clear on that. Um, when, we, when we say reconciliation, really the, the phrase uh, or the definition that's been most helpful for us comes from our friends at the Global Immersion Project, and that is the holistic repair of severed relationships. So when we talk about reconciliation, we're talking about the opposite of divorce. We're talking about when things that are separated come together again and are joined together in right relationship. And so if you've been around, you know that we've used the Hebrew concept of shalom, which is really the depiction in the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible to describe the world the way that it ought to be, the world the way God wants it. And shalom, we understand, is kind of a synonym for peace, but not peace in the sense of absence, for absence of conflict only, but peace in the sense of robust, life-giving, flourishing relationships. And so these four relationships that, uh, that Hebrew 
people of God for centuries have used to describe what does a life of shalom look like. Really simple, God, others, self, creation. When things are right in the world, when things in the world are the way they ought to be, the way God desires them to be, there exists right relationship between us and God, between us and ourselves, between us and other humans, and us and the rest of creation of which we are a part. And so I want you just to think about this for a moment, and it's the reality that your life The life that God has given you is defined by your relationships. You do not exist in this world apart from the relationships that God has created you to inhabit. These relationships with himself, relationship with other people, relationship with yourself, the relationship with the non-human parts of creation. This is what it is to be human, to exist in a context of relationships. And just like any relationship, all of these can be strong, they can be weak, they can be healthy, they can be unhealthy, they can be life-giving, they can be life-taking. But nevertheless, we exist in the context of relationships. And so what we're talking about as we move into this series on pursuing on pursuing this vision and mission of reconciliation of all things is the idea that authentic Christian spirituality means seeking maturity and wholeness in each of these relationships. Sometimes we think that Christianity only has to do with me and God, and it absolutely has to do with me and God, but it has to do with a lot more than that. And so this series, we're asking, what does it look like to trust and to follow Jesus in all of these relationships that he's making new with all of ourself in all of our life? And so we're uh, using three words to try to really flesh out what the pursuit of reconciliation or right relationship looks like. When we say reconciliation, which is a word that we use so much that maybe it's losing its meaning, I'm going to try to not use it. Instead, think of it this way, that reconciliation, right relationship, involves at least these three aspects. It includes knowing, loving, and serving. The relationships that God has called us into require our heads, our hearts, and our hands. There's a cognitive and effective and a practical aspect to every relationship. And so when we talk about practicing or pursuing reconciliation with God, with ourselves, with other people, or with the rest of creation, we're talking about what are those things that we would need to know? And then how are the things that we know about the other, how do those inform the way we feel? or what we value in our hearts? And then how does what we know and what we value or feel, how is that expressed through our hands in a practical sense? And so this is a familiar idea all throughout scripture that Christian spirituality involves all of ourself. If you think about the Shema, 
Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, so love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus later on would say of the 613 commandments that make up the law, this is the one. This is the most important one. Love God with everything you've got. So to love God, to be in right relationship with God, looks like learning to love him with our hearts, learning to love him with our soul, learning to love him with our strength. And so um, St. Ignatius of Loyola, one of the uh, um, most significant uh, thinkers and practitioners in terms of the formation of the soul of disciples of Jesus um, said this, that God freely created us. Why did God create us? God freely created us so that we might know, love, and serve him in this life and be happy with him forever. All the things in this world are gifts of God created for us to be the means by which we can come to know him better, love him more surely, and serve him more faithfully. And so this is Ignatius' way of summing up what it means to bring all of ourself into the pursuit of God and to open all of ourselves up to God's pursuit of us. And so we are essentially taking this phrase, reconciliation of relationships, and saying that involves all of us, our head, our heart, and hands, and it looks like knowing, serving, uh, knowing, loving, and serving. And so as Ignatius applies that to the relationship we have with God, we're also going to apply it to all the other relationships. Not only how do I know, love, and serve God, but what does it look like to know, love, and serve my neighbors? And if you know about Antioch's vision and mission, we take that idea of neighbors and say it starts here, our neighbors and our brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. And then what does it look like to know and serve our neighbors within Bend and Central Oregon? And then what does it look like to know and love and serve our neighbors around the world? And then what does it look like to know, love, and serve ourselves, which is such a strange idea, but maybe there's something that the scriptures want to teach us about that. And then finally, what does it look like to know, love, and serve uh, the rest of creation? And so we'll be taking one of those uh, each week for the next six weeks with a few breaks for guest speakers in between and creating space to listen to God and specifically to seek God's word in trying to understand what is this invitation of the gospel? What does it truly mean to follow Jesus in this time and place in which we find ourselves? And how can we use this time to open ourselves up to receive more knowledge, more love, more understanding, and more power from the Holy Spirit to live the life of Jesus that he's called us to? And so each week we're going to be using um, a psalm. We're going to be anchoring these studies in the psalms. And uh, this morning David read for us from uh, Psalm 119. And here's what you need to know about the book of Psalms. The psalms are the only book in the Bible um, that aren't meant to be read. Psalms isn't a book that you're supposed to read. It's a book you're supposed to pray. The Psalms is the prayer book 
of the Bible. For, for centuries, God's people have used this book and the songs and the prayers that it contains to give us a vocabulary and a vision for prayer. What does it look like to relate to God and to communicate with God in a way that is righteous, in a way that is holy, in a way that is reconciled? And so we have chosen to anchor this vision series in various psalms because we want to be sure that we understand the formation of our souls, our discipleship to Jesus and our communion with God is something not that we're trying to do for God or to earn our way to God, but it's something that happens in conversation and in partnership with God. So prayer, practicing God's presence, Learning to speak to him and to listen to him is going to be absolutely central if we're going to learn to live the life of Jesus. For Jesus, his life was saturated in the scriptures and even in the Psalms, so much so that in his moment of greatest pain and excruciation as he lies, as, he, as, he, as he's hung on the cross and crucified, what is it that comes out of his mouth? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from the Psalms. That's how deeply Jesus' spirituality and consciousness was shaped by these prayers. He knew them, he prayed them throughout his life, so much so that they became his native tongue. And so we are going to be rooting our conversations in the Psalms, understanding that there's an invitation to partner with God, to grow in in this conversation with God and ultimately um, pursuing the truth that God has put into his word so that we could gain a biblically formed view of God, ourselves, others, and the rest of creation. So Psalm 119, I just want to make a couple observations and share a couple thoughts as we kind of dive into an intro of this series this morning. Bible trivia nerds, what do you know about Psalm 119? Longest chapter in the Bible, that's right. And uh, it is a significant chunk. Um, although what's interesting, like you look at it and it's going pages and pages and pages. How long do you think it takes to read the whole thing? Probably 12 minutes, maybe 15. It's a little bit overwhelming when you think about a huge chapter in the Bible like this. But um, it's, a, uh, it's a collection of prayers um, and it's broken up into 22 sections. And if you have your Bible open, you'll see a Hebrew uh, word or, and even a Hebrew letter at the beginning of each section. And essentially, this is what we would call an acrostic. In each of these 22 sections, each line begins with that letter of the alphabet. And so it just walks through the Hebrew alphabet. Each line, eight lines per section. Um, in English, it would, it would be the first eight verses all start with A. The next eight verses all start with B. The next eight verses all start with C, and so forth. And so the psalmist, in kind of a poetic and playful way, is writing this prayer, um, which even I think that observation in and of itself means that he's engaging creatively, that he's looking at the world around 
around him to develop a vocabulary for prayer. Um, and he's kind of challenging himself, so to speak, to learn how to see God and communicate with God in the ways that maybe aren't the most um, intuitive and or maybe even cliche um, for how prayers typically work. But what he's also doing is saying that there is so much that could be said in praise of God that we need all of A to Z to do it. And so um, the, the, the genre that we're dealing with here is poetry, but also at the same time it fits into the category of scriptures that we know as wisdom literature. So there's a handful of the Psalms that aren't just songs of praise or songs of worship or songs of lament or that sort of thing, but they actually are what we would call wisdom songs. Now here's what I mean by that. We know other places in scripture are wisdom literature, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Job, things like that. Don't think of Psalms as being wisdom literature that often. Wisdom literature essentially is God's way of inviting his people to ask the question, what does it look like to live really well? That's the question that literature around wisdom seeks to answer. How can I as a human take this one life that I've got and steward it well? I've got one chance at this thing and I don't want to blow it. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to have a lame existence at the end of my life to look back full of regret. I want to live well. I want to make the most of it. I want to be the best version of myself that I can be. I want to leave the greatest impact on the world that I possibly can. What does it look like to live well? The answer to those questions are what the Bible offers in the form of wisdom. This is what it looks like to live well. Here are the things that you need to know. Here are the things that you need to love. And here are the things that you need to do. Here are the priorities to pursue. Here's the way to order your life. Here's an invitation forward into that. And so what an incredible gift that we have in the scriptures from God the very God who made us, who created us, who authors the story of each of our lives, doesn't just release us into the world and say, good luck. But he says, I want to give all, give you everything you need to live the life that I've created and redeemed you for. And so receive this gift of a wisdom psalm, those portions of scripture that are wisdom literature. Receive those as a gift because we only get one shot at this. So if you look in Psalm 119, we're just gonna look at the first few verses this morning. He says, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. Now, so here's what's interesting about Psalm 119. The longest chapter in the Bible is a psalm that really has one singular focus. And as a chapter that's designed to be an impartation of God's wisdom to God's people, the singular focus of this longest chapter in our Bible 
the singular focus is the word of God. What you're going to see throughout Psalm 119, as you set aside 12 to 15 minutes to read it this week, is this, that the psalmist uses eight words as synonyms for the scriptures. Here's the eight words as you read through Psalm 119. Laws, statutes, ways, precepts, decrees, commands, word, promise. So every single verse in Psalm 119 contains one of these words, except for one that I could find. That's your challenge this week. See if you can find another verse in Psalm 119 that doesn't contain one of these words. But for the most part, every single one of them, every verse speaks to the value, to the beauty, to the glory that is God's word given to us in the scriptures. And what you'll notice is that throughout this psalm, there's a very holistic picture that this prayer offered is one that touches every part of the psalmist's being. And so even in these first three verses, we get this sense that this psalmist is describing a mind that knows God and a heart that loves God and hands that serve God. This prayer, this prayer that's given to us to shape our pursuit of a life of wisdom is in and of itself consumed with a passion for knowing, loving, and serving God with our whole self. Mature Christian spirituality is about pursuing right relationship with God, self, others, and creation in a way that seeks maturity and wholeness in each of these relationships. So if you think about, if he was only talking about knowledge, knowing God at a head level and knowing God's stats and knowing God's stories and knowing God's figures and knowing God's facts, that's valuable. But we all know people who know a whole bunch of stuff about God and we don't really want to hang out with them. So knowing isn't enough. And then he talks multiple times about the heart. Verse two, with all their heart. Verse seven, with an upright heart. Verse 10, seek you with all my heart. Verse 11, I've hidden your word in my heart. The heart is, uh, it's a complex Hebrew idea, but at the very least, it's the seed of emotions. And he doesn't say emotions don't matter in our spirituality. Of course they do. But he says, If it was just emotions, what do we have? We have a whole bunch of warm, fuzzy feelings that may be here one day and gone the next. And they aren't enough to ground us in the truth or move us into service. So heart matters, but it's not enough. And then if you read through these 16 verses, you also see a whole bunch of action verbs. What does it look like to do wisdom? to live in the way of wisdom. He uses walk, keep, seek, follow, obey, consider, praise, remember, meditate, delight, verbs, hands. And at the same time, the picture is that it's not just about what we do. 
We know that it's possible to spend our life performing mindless tasks, especially when it comes to this kind of space that we think of as religion or spirituality where it becomes ritualistic or legalistic where we're just doing things, but there's no heart or there's no head in it. Or we find ourselves out of anxiety, over-functioning, and just trying to keep ourselves busy and guilt-free, and Christianity becomes a long list of things to do. Doing matters, but it's not enough. And so there's this beautiful vision of a biblical anthropology, a biblical understanding of humanity that says we aren't just heads, we aren't just hearts, we aren't just bodies. We are all of those things. And all of those things are being reconciled to God and all of those things are being enlisted in the service of reconciliation between us and God, self, others, and the rest of creation. And what's beautiful is all of us have experienced this in one way or another. And there's no, um, there's no order of operations that's going to be prescriptive. There's no rhyme or reason sometimes. But we know that sometimes as we become aware of something intellectually that it changes our heart. And then as our heart changes, it changes the way we live. And so there's a process or a connection. Other times it goes the other way. Other times we have an experience we do something, we see something, we, we experience something with our bodies, which then changes our heart, and as our hearts change, then our minds change. A lot of spiritual formation gurus mess with the order of operations, and I'm saying, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You know what that means? He's going, the Holy Spirit does whatever the Holy Spirit wants. Don't try to put him in a graph or on a chart or something like that. The moment your spiritual formation has three steps to, this, to success, you're no longer relying on the Holy Spirit. He's going to work in us and form Christ in us in a myriad of different ways. And my story is going to look different than yours. <clears throat> but the end goal is that what Christ would find when he looks at this congregation of believers is a community of women and men with open minds, open hearts, and open hands, wanting to receive more of him, to grow in our knowledge of him, to grow in our love of him, to grow in our service of him, and then to turn and to, and to <clears throat> turn that knowledge and love and service into the joy of the world. And so in the end, Jesus declares that those who follow him, those who would be great in his kingdom, must learn to be a servant of all. That's the picture that we're talking about. What does true spiritual maturity look like? It looks like learning to live as a servant of all. Which immediately starts feeling like, golly, that's a lot. Feels like he's asking a lot. Feels like he's expecting a lot. I already feel like my tanks are mostly empty. I already feel like my schedule's totally full. I feel like I'm operating at half capacity. I feel like I don't have much to give at the end of any given day. 
And great, now we're going to talk about two months of learning to be servants of all. So on one hand, I want to say, yeah, to follow Jesus means you're going to die. It means the way of self-giving, self-sacrificing love. On the other hand, I want to say, the only reason we can even begin to have this conversation about knowing, loving, and serving is because we ourselves are people who are well-known, well-loved, and have been well-served by God in Christ. That he has given himself to us, poured himself out for us, and ultimately he has died and given his life for us and to us. And so this salvation that we enter into isn't just about wisdom and good advice on how to move forward and live really well, but it's centered in good news. That the only human who's ever lived a truly perfect life has gone before us and has given his life to us. So Antioch, you are known by Jesus. You're loved by Jesus. And he wants to serve you. So Sean's going to come and lead us to the table this morning. An opportunity to receive life and love from Christ. And I want to pray for us as Sean comes and invite the Spirit to inhabit and empower this journey that we're beginning today. Will you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, we are so grateful that not only have you lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, but you have also given yourself to us and you have given us your spirit that we might truly live in your name. And so we invite you, God, as we seek to set out on this journey, and it's a serious journey. It's a journey of a community that is not going to settle for the status quo. It's the journey of a community that's not going to be satisfied with cultural Christianity. It's the journey of a community that's not content to just go through the motions and cosplay Christianity. We, Lord Jesus, we want you. We need you. We need your very life, your power, and your spirit to fill us, to inhabit us. And so we give you our minds, we give you our hearts, we give you our bodies, our hands, all that we are, and invite you to come and to make your home amongst us, to change us, to transform us, to teach us your ways that we would pursue you and live in this world as those who are fully known, loved, and have been served by a God. That we may become the kind of people that the world needs most. For the glory of your name, amen.